Elie Wiesel was a survivor of Auschwitz and another concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And he wrote a book entitled Night. It's an incredible read. If you're looking for a book to read this summer, it's, it's not that long, but it is packed full of material that will cause you to pause and reflect on not only on his life, but on the lives of many other people through the course of the Nazi Holocaust against the children of Israel. And in his book, he, he chronicles one event after another, heartbreaking, heart-rending kind of stories of what he saw and what he lived through in those horrific days. One of those stories, about 50 pages into his book, is about a, a moment, a, a situation in which he was brutally beaten by one of the Nazi guards. And Elie Wiesel at the time was a late teenager, probably 17 or 18, I guess. And, and during that beating, it was savage. And uh, because he wouldn't cry out, the, uh, the guy that was beating him, the soldier was thinking that he was being defiant, and so he just beat him all the more. And finally left him a bleeding, crump, uh, crumpled up mass of human flesh on the floor. And Wiesel crawled over. And he said as he was lying there, taking stock of what had just happened, the anger boiling inside of him, he felt a light tap on his shoulder and he looked up into the face of a young French girl who was serving as an orderly for the Nazis at that particular point. And she leaned over to him and she said these words, keep your anger and your hate for another day, for later. The day will come, but not now. Wait. Clench your teeth and wait. I had not read that book on the day that I received a phone call that my son had been attacked and assaulted at school. I've told you that story, so I won't go into the details of that, but there are some of the aftermath of that that I do want to kind of highlight today because even though I hadn't read that particular story, there was that part of me, that, that battle, the battle for supremacy in my thoughts and my emotions that was a very real battle in those days because everything inside of me, understanding when the doctor at the emergency room said, your son was nearly beaten to death. And in those aftermath days and, and weeks, I, I remember vividly thinking, I have failed. It's my job to protect my son. It's my job now to retaliate. It's my job to seek and to destroy those who have attacked us. But the battle also included that, that faint Christian biblical word, to forgive. I opted for the words of that French girl. I didn't know them at the time, but as I read them the first time and looked back over that experience, I realized that I had opted for that set of words she gave Elie Wiesel, wait, clench your teeth and wait. And so I waited. My soul began to wither under that pressure. I suspect that her words spoken so many decades ago now 
provide a pretty good inner strategy or capture the inner strategy of many people in our world today, even Christian people. For those of us who have been wronged by somebody else, somebody else has attacked us, somebody else has offended us, somebody else has mistreated us, then it's very likely that as we gather here today, we have adopted the strategy that says, I'll just clench my teeth and I'll wait and I'll have the opportunity at some point to get even. After all, isn't the word of our time, the saying of our time, don't get even, get ahead? I think today is a good time for us to get real together. What I mean by that is many times we come to church and we hear the sermon that the pastor has or the lesson that our Sunday school teacher has laid out for us. And as we sit there, we hear things that we know probably have some application to us, but it's just a lot easier that we listen on behalf of somebody else. You've done that, right? The preacher starts talking about something and and it kind of twinges your heart a little bit. You go, boy, I sure wish my son was here to hear this. He really needs this. Sometimes we say it without a word. We just see, I I see it from up here. I see elbows go from spouse to spouse. It's the elbow that says, hey, he's talking to you now. So let me encourage you to own today's message for yourself. This is not one you can hear for somebody else, really. This is a message that cuts to the heart of how we live our lives. And because many of us have opted for that set of words from that French girl, clench your teeth and wait. You've been hurt. Somebody has offended you. You're not sure what to do with the pain. It's a good time for us to get real. We, we verbally endorse forgiveness. We know that. I, I, I tried to lay that out for you in my response to my son's attacker. I, I know that Scripture says forgive. As a matter of fact, if you're not too sure about that, I'll just point you in the right direction. Matthew chapter 18, there's this exchange between Jesus and Simon Peter. And Simon Peter's pretty much like 21st American Baptist Christianity because he likes to look better than he really is. And so, in this discussion, Simon Peter says to Jesus, So, Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my neighbor? And then, I think, trying to make himself look rather spiritual, he says, Seven times? But here's the deal about Jesus. Jesus saw through the smoke screen that Simon Peter was throwing out. He sees through our smoke screens as well. And Jesus dives into the discussion. And his answer to Simon Peter is, no, you don't need to just forgive seven times. Make it 70 times seven. And some of us out here have done the math. And we know that there's 490 times that we have to forgive. But in Simon Peter's suggestion, seven times? There is this implication that says, I'm going to do it for a while, but after seven times, then you can be sure that I'm going to be keeping track of how many times I've forgiven because after I pass seven and get to eight, it's game on then. So Jesus just ramps it up and he, he gives this astronomical number and most of us hear that 70 times seven, 490, and we know that we're going to lose track somewhere in the middle. We need to be real about this, I think. We know that we're supposed to give. We know that we're called to do that. But isn't it true that when someone offends us and hurts us, maybe even attacks us, that we really struggle to let go of the offense 
and the pain. So what happens is we gather up our offense and our pain and we throw it into our backpack. Let me explain that reference for you. Uh, Actually, I have a, a set of friends who did a lot of backpacking a number of years ago. They lived in deep south Texas, but they would drive all the way up with a bunch of teenagers up to the Pecos Wilderness outside of Santa Fe and uh, it's in Glorietta Conference Center. And so these men would take teenagers on a backpacking trip, a week-long trip, and they would go up. And so uh, I, I know I've said this in another, or used this illustration in another Bible study here. I don't think I've done it in here. But um, so what, what happened on this one particular trip, there was this big guy, a teenager. He was, he's a big man when I knew him, but back when he was a teenager, he was still big. And so the other guys in the backpacking trip decided they were going to play a trick on Jay, And so they put Jay up kind of in the middle of the line as they were hiking. And all day long, the guys behind him would stop and pick up a rock and slip it into Jay's backpack. And Jay never knew anything was going on. They noticed as the day wore on that Jay got a little slower as they were going up the mountain. There's some pretty good climbs on that part. of. They said some of them, he just wasn't sure he was going to make it. And they were doing it all day long. Just different guys would grab a rock and slip it in the top of his backpack. By the time they got to the campsite that night, <laughs> Jay was just so worn out that he just threw his pack off and he just laid down on the ground. When he should have been putting up his tent and getting the campsite ready, he just had no energy left. And so he just laid there for a while, not understanding why all of a sudden he was so worn out until he opened his backpack and dumped it out and there was a host of rocks that he had been carrying all day long. I would suggest to you that many people, many Christian people, handle our pain that way. We we don't really hand it off to somebody else, although that happens some. Many of us tend to take the offense or the betrayal or the mistreatment at the hands of other people, and we take that and we stuff it into our spiritual backpack, and we carry it around with us, and it wears us out. After a while, the load gets heavy, and we need to lighten it some, which brings us to our text for the day. All of that's inter- introduction for this message. So let's jump into the message proper. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're in verse 5. Again, this is the final time. Today is the last entry in our series that we've entitled Love Works. And Paul has been describing how love works in a person's life as he is talking and writing to a group of churches in Corinth, first century Corinth, and they have not done well when it comes to their interpersonal relationships. Love has not worked for them. And so Paul writes to try to help correct some of that. And we come now to verse 5. It's the third time, I think, that we've been in this particular verse. We're going to look at one statement. It's at the end of the verse. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 reads this way. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Resentful, as the English Standard Version says it, leaves some room for discussion. I like the way the New International Version translates this. I think they get it spot on with what Paul intends because the New International Version says that love keeps no record of wrong. It might be a little bit hard for us to kind of get a handle on that word. It's an accounting word. 
Paul brings it straight out of the world of accounting and he drops it into this discussion of how love works. And he essentially says, love doesn't count. But the word also has a secondary meaning and they both come to bear on the way Paul uses it here. It also means to consider or to reckon. And so there's this mental part that's involved in this word. So I've, I've asked, uh, actually one of our church members put this together. This is an abacus. Some of you learned how to count on an abacus, I suppose. I learned how to count on an abacus. Now, that's not the only way I learned, but it was one of the things. Now, this is a real simple one, all right? And so this one has, if I remember right, 15 beads, but each bead represents one. And most abacuses, abacusi, uh, most of these things would have more than one rod, And so each abacus would count as one, but you could go to the next line of rods over, uh, and each bead then might be worth five or ten or a hundred. And so you could have this full of different rods with beads on each one of them, and so it's a way of counting. So let's do it this way. Think of, back to your childhood, Ebenezer Scrooge. You remember that story? And the picture that we have is Ebenezer Scrooge as he's counting out his gold coins and his treasure, his stash, we might say. And he uses, we would use this word that Paul's using to talk about him because he's fully engaged in the process. He's considering, he's reckoning, but he's also counting. And so he counts one, two, that's the way this would work, all right? Or a hundred or 10 or however many of these are worth. Now, that's Ebenezer Scrooge. He's counting it. He's keeping track of it. So you could count for a little while and leave it there and come back later and know exactly where you were. You wouldn't have to start counting again, all right? But the reason I bring this today, Chris Licking made this for us on short notice, so thanks, Chris. But what I want you to consider today is this represents, and each of these may well represent offenses that you suffer at the hands of somebody else. Love keeps no record of wrongs, Paul says. But for many people, many Christian people, we are excellent at running an abacus and keeping count. So let's take a few examples from your life. Let's start in church. Somebody get your parking place this morning? If they did, that's one. But probably nobody got your parking place. The only person I know around who has a designated parking place is Elvin. And uh, that's because he gets here before everybody else. He gets whatever he wants. Um, Let's do it this way. My son, uh, not too long ago, was going through a really difficult time in his life. Teresa and I believe that he was having one of those struggles about whether or not he was going to stick with this whole church thing or not. And so one day he went to answer of many prayers, of our prayers anyway, he went to church. He picked a local church close to where he lives, and he went, and he was greeted in the parking lot. Everything they did about handling him was spot on. And so he found his way into the auditorium the the sanctuary and they so he sat down he was a little bit early before the church service was to start and so he just found a place to sit down sat down and he had been there maybe 10 minutes or so when somebody who was behind him a young couple leaned forward tapped him on the shoulder and said um we're gonna have to ask you to move because that's where our friends usually sit 
happens in church. Maybe the preacher, you know, the smart aleck preacher, always trying to get in your business, stepping on your toes, says something, and that's another one. Maybe it's not at church. Maybe it's at work. You ever have a boss jump you out about something that was not really your fault? So that's another. Sometimes the way that works is you get in trouble at work, and so you jump in the car to go home, and it's traffic city out there. And so you never really get to deprogram from the day, and you walk in the door, and first thing you know, your wife or your husband jump on you about being late, supper's cold. Let's do one that's worth five. I'm just going to use it in one title, mother-in-law. So what I want you to get from this is sometimes the things that offend us or that hurt us don't really seem like that big of a deal. I mean, really, what's one beat? But if we don't let it go, if we pick that up, that offense, and we throw it into our backpack and we start carrying it around with us, what happens is over a period of time, it's not one or two that we're carrying around. Actually, we're going to need a bigger abacus. And some of us have spent a lifetime of trading off abacusi so that we get, I don't know how to say that, so that we get bigger and bigger rather than letting the load go. Paul is insightful as he steps into the mix of a people that have been roasting each other in that Corinthian church. And he says, of all things, love keeps no record of wrongs. This is about the time that I suspect that some of us are saying, hold on. You know, it's okay. I, the little stuff, I, I'll give you that one, preacher. That's fine. But some of us don't take five at a time. Some of us take 50 at a time because the hurt is so big. Some people in our churches all across America today are bringing with them loads of offense and loads of pain and loads of mistreatment at the hands of other people and they just can't let it go because it's just too big a deal. Some of you would say to me, just hold on a minute there, buddy. You don't understand what I've been through. I may not. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter if anybody else understands or not. The reality is that we come to this situation and we're burdened down by carrying around all of this garbage from a lifetime of mistreatment at the hands of other people. And it just gets heavy. And it wears us out emotionally. And as I said relative to that situation with my son, our soul begins to wither within us. We forget how to love people. And it robs our very lives from us. And so we go 10, 20, 30 years of carrying that stuff around and we just end up bitter old people. How is it with you? You're running out of room in that sack? 
about ready to trade in for a bigger, newer model of the abacus that keeps track of the wrongs of your life? You know, one of the things it does by keeping hold of those things is we have a way of reminding ourselves. And so every once in a while, we'll reach back into that pack and we'll pull one of those things out. We'll rub it around over our heart and our head until the emotion and the pain of that gets too big to bear again. And so we just throw it back into the pack. Love works. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Might be easier said than done, I suppose. But if we don't let that stuff go, if we don't come over and say, because of the love that I have, I'm going to clear the slate. We're going to get back to where we're supposed to be. And if you don't do that on a regular basis, you just keep filling up the pack before it's over with. You're, you're bitter, you're angry, you're irritable, and you begin to withdraw from people and you distrust people. And it kills you. And then it kills your witness. The reason I say it that way is because the reality is that we have a calling to forgive. We know that passage of Scripture from Matthew 18. Jesus tells a parable to Simon Peter. Then he comes to the back end of that parable and he says, so the Heavenly Father will do to you if you don't forgive other people. We know that stuff, but it's just one of those things that just seems to be too hard. So we carry it around. We keep track. And the hits just keep coming. People won't stop. They are relentless in the hurting you part of life. What do you do with that? Let me give you, very quickly, five suggestions. If you find yourself today struggling with letting it go, and you need to lighten the load, and you know you need to lighten the load, and you know you need to get back to love does not keep a record of wrongs, here's the first suggestion for you. You need to acknowledge your own sin. (laughs) Now, I know this is where people start going, hold on a second, this is not about my sin. This is about their sin. Okay, I'm going to try to help you get over the pain that you're carrying around. And your place you start is acknowledge your own sin. You must own the fact that you are a sinner. You know, here's a, you're going to sound like this is, you're going to think I'm doing double talk here, but this is true. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And so one of the things that happens is when you're the one who's hurt and you have this full list of wrongs that have been done to you and you're weighted down by that load that you're carrying around, the reality is you begin to take that out on other people, whether you know it or not. Here's a good question for you. In the people in your life, how big is their abacus because of your actions? So you wouldn't like to think about that. We're much more comfortable being the victim than we are in owning what we need to own. And we have to own this. Every one of us is a sinner. Scripture is clear about that. For all have sinned except for the preacher. Just see if you're listening. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our trespasses, our wrongs to other people have to be acknowledged. That's where you start. And the reason I start you there is because you have to understand what forgiveness looks like, and you'll never understand it if you don't internalize the forgiveness that is yours. That's the second one. When you acknowledge your own sin and you own it, run to the cross. 
Because if you don't, then you'll just have more guilt to carry around with you. It'll, it'll totally paralyze you in your life if all you do is focus on your own sin. So you acknowledge your sin, but you run to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this. This is Paul writing to the Colossian Christians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When you acknowledge your own sin, then get to the cross where there's forgiveness. (laughs) It's no accident that from the cross, Jesus modeled the kind of forgiveness that we need to exercise when he said of those who were nailing him there, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Thirdly, once you've experienced what forgiveness is, then you have to start thinking about how you respond to those people who hurt you. I hope you know I love you by now. I mean, we're 11 months into this relationship. You know I love you? Okay, one or two of you went, maybe. (laughs) I I want to be real direct with you, okay? If Jesus can forgive those people, who do you think you are not to forgive them? They didn't do anything to you that was any worse than what they do to God himself, a holy God. And Jesus died on the cross for their sins just like he did for yours. And so if he can forgive them for that, You must. You see why understanding forgiveness is such a big deal? Got quiet, so let me move on. So then the next thing you have to do is you have to remove the emotional component of that. Hear me very carefully now, please. Sometimes we carry the hurt and the pain that someone else caused us, and we carry it around so long that it becomes part of us. And we nurse it until we feel like we're justified in feeling it. If Jesus is ever Lord, then he's always Lord. And if he's always Lord, by the way, he is, then that means he can be Lord of your emotions too. You're not living at the mercy of your emotions. It's a choice that you make. That's the last one I want to push to. That is you decide to forgive those people. I had a guy come to me one time. He said, I can't forgive them until they ask for forgiveness. I said, that's wrong. That's just wrong. You're called to forgive them whether they ask for forgiveness or not. So choose to do it. Sarah Renner wrote a song that I think captures very well what we're talking about today. Listen to some of the words of what she said. We walk this, oh, by the way, the, the song is entitled Forgiveness, or Forgive, excuse me, Forgive. Here's what she said. We walk this world with wounded hearts. We define ourselves by our scars. Till pain begins to taste like freedom and bitterness is who we are. Sweep the wreckage to the safe side of the street for you, for me, Forgive. And then she captures it with this line. If you want to live, forgive.
The song poses a profound question. It leads us to the invitation. It leads us to what do I do with this whole thing today? Sarah Renner asked it this way, do you want to rise above the comfort of this curse? Some of you are in a lot of pain. You can live again. There is life on the other side of the offense. But you got to lighten the load. You got to let it go. You got to reach out to Jesus Christ for the power that it takes to let it go. Let's pray. And so, Father, we've been confronted with, with a timely truth in a world that seems to be expert at causing pain at the hands of ruthless people 
who dissect our emotions and our identity even with their words and with the way they treat us. With a society that cries out revenge and retaliate and seek and destroy those who are doing the destroying. You call us to let love work, to keep no record of wrongs, to forgive. We can't do that. We need you to help us do that. So in this time of invitation, Father, we pray that those who are carrying heavy, heavy loads would find release in you. They would find the words of comfort that say, I will walk with you through the uncertain days. You've been carrying that stuff for so long that life will be different on the other side. I'll walk with you through that. Draw us close to your heart and empower us to do what you call us to do. You never require something but that you resource it. And so we draw to that now. We ask that you would change lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.